very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to our full interview tonight, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll be able to listen to hundreds of hours of truth. Stop waiting. Subscribe today. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, regardless, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website. The information we will discuss tonight contradicts nearly everything you've been led to believe about democracy and representative government based on the groundbreaking research of respected historian Carol Quickly, Tonight's guest has written a book titled Tragedy and Hope 101, and it reveals an unimaginably devious political system, skillfully manipulated by a handful of elite, which is undermining freedom and democracy as we know it. The goal of those who control the system, in Quickly's own words, is to dominate all habitable portions of the world using deception theft and violence. They have achieved more towards this goal than any rulers in human history. However, the information age is quickly derailing their plans. The immorality of their system and those who serve it has become nearly impossible to hide. Awareness and resistance are growing. Tragedy is yielding to hope. And to tell us more tonight, special guest is Joseph Plummer, a civic-minded writer and entrepreneur who has written on topics ranging from alcohol and drug abuse to achieving personal and financial success. From government criminality and fraud to the debt-based Federal Reserve. In April 2012, he published his first novel, Leaving the Illusion, and his most recent book entitled Tragedy and Hope 101 provides readers an easy introduction to Carol Quigley's massive tome, Tragedy and Hope, and it will be the focus of tonight's discussion. His website is joeplumber.com, and he joins us directly from Grafton, Ohio. Hello, Joseph, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing good, Mel. It's a pleasure having you on. Uh, For the longest time, I've been wanting to read Tragedy and Hope, but it's 1,300 pages long, folks. And with my schedule constraints, it's been an impossibility. So recently, I was at a conference in Philadelphia, and somebody handed a card to me and said, you must interview this author. And it's Joseph Plummer, who's delighting us with his presence here today. Now, 
Professor Carr Quickly, again, Tragedy and Hope, 1,348 pages long. So I presume this is one of the reasons why most people have not read it. But you have, Joe, and you have summarized it in about 200 pages. When and why did you decide to do this? Well, for a while now, I've been working on trying to help people understand this system, this illegitimate system that we're all living under. And there's a lot of really good information out there from very reputable sources like Carol Quigley. But unfortunately, the form that it's in might as well be inaccessible. So, for instance, you know, a 1300 page book of small print written by, uh, you know, a, a dry toned academician is not going to get a lot of airtime. It's not no. going to get a lot of eyeballs. So uh, it was something that, as far as I was concerned, had to be done. And, and you know, there's it just there are some books that had been written none dare call it conspiracy and the naked capitalist would be similar books but i just kind of wanted to uh go through it maybe bring a little bit of a different angle to it and critique some of uh quigley's assertions in a different way and present the information in a different way and kind of bring it up to date also to include uh, other information give us some information about professor Carr quickly before we begin Okay, well, Quigley was a very well-respected uh, historian. He taught at Georgetown University for about 30 years. He was educated at Harvard, uh, taught at Harvard, taught at Princeton, um, advised the Department of Defense, uh, advised the Smithsonian Institute. So this was a very well-connected, well-credentialed Ivy League historian. And so that's what really brings so much weight to his account of what's going on and how governments actually operate, because he was one of the few in that circle of influence, that, that Ivy League higher echelon, that wasn't afraid to talk about things like secret societies and how a small group of individuals can get together and literally dominate the globe. You know, not just individual nations, but by securing control of the most powerful nations can uh, affect the policies that affect billions and billions of people. So uh, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the things that makes Quigley so valuable. Um, he was very close to this network of individuals, and he agreed in large part with much of what they believed and how they th thought things ought to be. So, for instance, that the electorate isn't particularly uh, worthy of much respect, and clearly these uh, experts should be the ones who direct policy. But it, it's clear to me, at least, I'm not as hard on Quigley as some of the others have been. It's clear to me that he was highly conflicted, and uh, he ultimately, you know, he was invited in because he was in that circle and they need, you know, they've always brought in people from their individual disciplines. And uh, he ultimately betrayed their trust because he uh, decided to expose them. And he did this not only in Tragedy and Hope, but also in the Anglo-American establishment. And the Anglo-American establishment is a, is a much more detailed, focused account of this network. Now, former President Clinton, he always talked about Quigley, even during his 92 Democratic Convention inauguration uh, speech, he mentioned yeah. him. Now, he was a student of Quigley and considered Quigley a mentor. Do you notice or have you noticed how Quigley's influence shaped Clinton's presidency for the better or worse? 
Uh, well, I, I personally don't believe that any of the people that make it to that level are anything more than puppets that are there to carry <laughs> out the, the policies of, of the network. So, and if they don't, they wind up like Kennedy in Dealey Plaza. So, you know, if they, if they actually go against what's expected of them and they start to ignore their advisors, advisors I put in quotes, scare quotes, <laughs> their, their advisors that, that are there to tell them what they're supposed to say and what policies they're supposed to be pursuing, uh, I think things don't turn out too well for them. I remember the comedian Bill Hicks when he used to uh, talk about how any president after JFK, after being elected, they would go to a room in the White House and some, uh, yeah. some group of people would show them the Kennedy assassination video and they would say, any questions, Mr. President? Sure. Sure. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous to assume that the president, uh, especially any of these characters that are trotted out by the mainstream media, you know, the, the ones that people get to choose from. There may be some people out there. I think Ron Paul could have actually done a decent amount of damage before they killed him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But, um, you know, no, the, the standard issue uh, establishment top tier candidates, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath for anything significant to happen there as far as disrupting the major policies that are important and are put in place by this, uh, by these experts. Now this term, the network, which is prevalent yeah. in your book, what is the network? Well, I, I use the term the network because it's just easy yeah. and Wigley actually uses it as well. He calls it the Milner group and he calls it, uh, you know, a couple other He uses a couple other terms, but he also uses the network, and I think that that's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, depending on where you want to start, the initial beginning of this network was with Cecil Rhodes and a handful of uh, elite uh, aristocratic, you know, well, the, the upper echelon of, of English society uh, got together and decided that they literally wanted to dominate all habitable portions of the world and that was the secret society that they founded so that's I, i'm i'm clearly not referring to them specifically since they're all dead and gone but what they created the instruments that they went on to create so they started with what quigley calls well there's the pilgrim society and then they go into the, these round table groups and then from the round table groups you start to get into some things that people have probably heard of like the cfr and the royal institute uh, for international affairs and uh you know from there you know the cfr we get the cia the cfr was heavily involved in the war and peace studies and out of that we get the cia and the nsa and so essentially not to mention the federal reserve system the income tax all of these things were all facilitated by this group of individuals who sought out uh in their own words to dominate all habitable portions of the world and the, the way in which they felt they needed to do this was through secret economic and political influence and through uh, secret control of journalistic, educational, and propaganda agencies. So those are quotes from Quigley, that this is how they knew, you know, everything would have to be done deceptively in order for them to succeed. And through that process, you know, gaining control of the U.S. State Department and uh, gaining control of, uh, like, for instance, in 1912 with the election of Woodrow Wilson, where they split the vote to get Woodrow Wilson in there. Out of that, they were able to get their Federal Reserve System in place. They were able to get the income tax in place. Yep. That provided the primary funding mechanism 
for this uh, what's essentially a, a, a global sovereignty destruction project because you know clearly if uh, you want to rule the world you have to have one central global authority you can't have truly independent nations um, the the income tax and the Federal Reserve system provided the funding for that project which has been ongoing ever since now but 100 plus years 103 now, when I think of the time before, well, before 1913, before we had the Federal Reserve Act and the Tax Revenue Act, I wonder, because we were already a superpower. Our economy was doing great. We had the healthy growth. We didn't need income tax, right? No. Yeah. No, of course not. They wanted income tax because it's another source of revenue. That's one of the things that I critique Quigley on. <clears throat> Quigley has the sense to see that what these people have achieved is dangerous, and, and he draws a lot of reasonable conclusions. But one of the conclusions he draws that I disagreed with was he thought, you know, that the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and these other titans that were powerful at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, must have lacked power, or else they would have stopped the income tax. But that doesn't make any sense because it, it, any anything that brings more money into a system that these people control only empowers those people. So I don't think he really went far enough in even assessing his own assertions. Again, if I am, uh, let, let's assume there's an oligarchy and that oligarchy has wealth. Let's, let's assume that maybe it has to pay a small percentage of that wealth. And I say that because they put in place tax exempt foundations to shield their wealth before the income tax came into, in, into being. So that's a whole other angle to all of this. Which is one thing that, that the Clinton family learned very well from quickly. Sure. So that, you know, there's that side of it. But even if they did, even if they were paying some exorbitant amount of money yearly, what difference does it make if they're confiscating tens of billions, then hundreds of billions, and then trillions of dollars, which is where we're at annually now, confiscating trillions of dollars that they, through their instruments and in directing policy, are able to uh, spend as they see fit. It's works perfectly well. It's it's a cover. It's okay, this is going to get the, the wealthy people, but at the end of the day, all it does is dump literally trillions of dollars into this, into these instruments that they've created that they can then uh, wield in a way that they want and, and to achieve things that they would be completely unable to achieve without that, without those trillions of dollars. And not only did we not need the income tax, if we needed more revenue, we could have just printed our own currency without paying interest to a private entity, the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, nor does it have reserve. But you mentioned the CIA. I wanted to ask you, before the CIA, we had the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Sure. Do you think the CIA has gone, gone rogue now? I believe they were all instruments of the exact same network, Mel. So yes, it, it isn't even that they've gone rogue. They were established with the intent to dominate all habitable portions of the world. I always come back to that quote because that quote is as clear cut as you can possibly get. That is specifically what the, the stated goal was. So if, if this network of individuals, they, let's assume the first form that maybe we would have seen here in the United States would have been the inquiry. The inquiry then becomes, so the inquiries in Woodrow Wilson's, uh, 
in Woodrow Wilson's administration, and they're the experts that are going to go hammer out the, the first attempt at this uh, supranational structure, which would have been the League of Nations. The, first, you have the inquiry, and then the inquiry directly, this is even on the CFR's website, becomes the CFR. And then the CFR and others within this within this network are talking specifically about, uh, you know, the need to destroy sovereignty. Why would they do that? Well, that's because that's exactly what the whole purpose of what they're doing is. The whole purpose of what they're doing is to create a supranational structure that they will control. So in order to do that, you can't have sovereignty. You can have the illusion of sovereignty, maybe, but you can't really have sovereignty. And they're, and they're actually beginning to drop any pretense of that. So again, like look at the CIA as an instrument of people who want to destroy sovereignty. It has nothing to do with protecting us. It has nothing to do with protecting the United States. And if you go to the, um, what was it, 2008, I believe, the CFR has, obviously the League of Nations didn't go as far as they wanted. Then they create World War II, and then we get the United Nations, which they actually were able to pull the United States in on that, and they made a lot of progress. But in 2008, they were already discussing about the inadequacies of the, that particular instrument for uh, what they call world order. They don't say new world order, and they don't say global government, but they say global governance and world order in the 21st century. And in it, they explicitly are, are dropping any pretense of maintaining U.S. sovereignty. They're explicitly saying that U.S. sovereignty is a problem if the U.S. is to play an important role in this new emerging structure. They explicitly say that the Constitution is a problem. They explicitly say that legal traditions and separation of powers and all of these things are problems that have to be dealt with if the U.S. is going to uh, play any meaningful role in this world that they're creating. So, again, it's, it's kind of good and I don't know, kind of bad, depending on how you look at it. They're really uncloaking, and the information is there if people just want to read it and trace it back. That's one of the things I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show uh, where these these instruments, who created them. Clearly, they wouldn't have created them to be used against their own interests. They used them to to help them achieve what they set out to do. I remember George... H. W. Bush on September 11th, 1990, and we know what happened exactly 11 years later, but saying that we need a new world order and we will have it. Do you remember those words? Yeah, I've, there's been a lot of people who have said it. You know, it's, it's been uh, but the timing, demonized. The timing, 11 yeah. years to the day of 9-11-01. Yeah, ah, well, there's a lot of coincidences. There's people who actually research the the numerology aspect of it. I haven't got into it because to me it's, it's irrelevant. I, I, I mean, I could see how it would be interesting, but it's, it doesn't lend any more weight to the reality, which is that these people are sociopaths and they're dangerous and they will murder innocent people and lie and cheat and steal and torture and, and whatever it takes in order to achieve what they want. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the numerology and the fact that maybe they're attracted to 11s and 9s and things like that it's, it could be interesting. And it, it definitely it is kind of odd 
But the bottom line is we're going to have to, regardless of what their fetish is with numbers, we're going to have to figure out a way to expose and weaken them, or we're all in big trouble, I think. Now, it seems that a, well, you use the word sovereignty, and this is one of my favorite words, really, but it seems that a global state is becoming a reality, even though the illusion of sovereignty is still there. Or is it, Joe? No, any substance of it. Um, not what would have been considered sovereignty a hundred years ago. So they're they're making a lot of progress, you know. But at the same time, there's a lot of pushback too. So I personally don't believe they they can succeed. I think they're up against forces that are beyond their capacity to control. Just just natural forces that can't be accounted for. Uh, that that are already as, as we speak right now starting to emerge against. So all of the power that they've gained over the past 100 years is is deteriorating at least. As far as I'm concerned, the main foundation of that power, which is trust in and uh, obedience to the people who are uh, doing all these things. If you go back, let's say, go back to World War One and suggested that the United States government, which is it's kind of wrong to say the United States government because it really isn't the United States government. It's a tiny infinitesimal percentage of a handful of people who are in control of the policies Mm -hmm. of the U.S. government. But if you were to suggest that they would ever be engaged in torture or ever be engaged in something like Operation Northwoods, they would never believe it. Whereas today, I think the percentage of people who are, uh, they have uh, the capacity to even consider stuff like that. I think it's it's just exploded over the past, say, well, based on what I've seen just online alone over the past 10 years, it's it's really grown a lot. So to me, that 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 bodes well, because if what they depend on, in their own words, is secret economic and political control and secret control of uh, the journalistic and propaganda agencies, then, uh, in other words, the ability to control what people think, I think uh, we're making a lot of progress. I'm happy with that part of it. I wanted to wait until later to discuss false flags, but since you brought Operation Northwoods up, I uh, wanted to ask you, because I know you discuss this in, in the book, a lot of our listeners know what Operation Northwoods was. It was just to get rid of Fidel Castro. Now, today, if I had to think of a boogeyman, yeah, Osama bin Laden, then we have Al-Qaeda, and we have ISIS, but the new boogeyman, in my opinion, is Iran, and if you had to, I don't want to plant any seeds to anybody here, but if you had to illustrate what a scenario would look like to get us into another world war with Iran, you mentioned that in the book. Can you illustrate what you what you said? You would like for me to repeat what I said in the book? Yes, yes, okay, with the well, airliner. I, basically, I use it as a as an analogy. I, I I draw on Operation Northwoods. So one of the proposed pretexts that was going to enable these people to go and attack Cuba, which was, you know, something that they wanted to do, but they didn't at the time have the, uh, it would be politically infeasible for them to do it. One of the pretexts that they came up with was to, uh, take a, take 200 CIA officers, load them on a plane under aliases, have that plane. This is a chartered plane, so it just looks like a normal civilian aircraft. 
then they would take that civilian aircraft and it would fly to Eglin Air Force Base and land. So it, it looks like the plane took off from an airport and it's on its, uh, you know, its normal flight path. But they would drop down and land it at Eglin Air Force Base and unload all these uh, actors, essentially CIA assets, and replace it with a remote con- controlled drone that would continue on the flight path. And then they would transmit a fake Mayday signal from that civilian aircraft stating that it was being tailed by a Cuban MiG and that it was about to be shot down just prior to detonating an explosion, detonating, uh, you know, something wirelessly that was on the plane that would destroy the plane. And they could then say Cuba attacked the civilian uh, airliner and killed these 200 innocent civilians. So what I said is now that sounds crazy. And anybody who stood up, Imagine the president comes on the television and says that Cuba has just killed 200 innocent people and they play the audio tape of the frantic uh, pilot. You know, we need help up here. We're being tailed by Cuban MiGs, then an explosion and screaming and then silence. And then they bring out the grieving, uh, the grieving widows and the grieving parents of those who have been killed and they would be on the media uh, telling the story of how bad, you know, their suffering is and everything else. And they play the audio over and over again. How many people would be willing to listen to the crazy conspiracy, conspiracy theorist who stood up and said, it's all, you know, it's all a lie. The U S government totally orchestrated the whole thing. It wasn't even a real plane load of people. It was a remote controlled drone. They flew it over here and they had used Cuban MIGs uh, that weren't even Cuban MiGs. They painted up F-86s to look like Cuban MiGs, so it'd be more believable. And all of this is in the document. <laughs> so it sounds completely crazy, but it's there. So that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful and important. And to kind of get back to what you were saying, you can imagine them doing the exact same thing with Iran. That's what I did in the book. I, I illustrated yeah. it from the perspective of Iran. So instead of we're being chased by uh, a Cuban fighter, we're being chased by an Iranian fighter. And that would be the Mayday signal that they would be uh, transmitting. And then, of course, the explosion. And you have the whole thing all over again. The president comes on very solemn to tell the story of how the crazed Iranian regime has killed innocent u.s civilians and how we absolutely aren't going to tolerate it and uh you know you can see how it would play out from there do you think it was politically infeasible or was it kennedy who put the brakes and that's why he you know prompted him to say i want to splinter the cia in a thousand pieces do you think this is one of the reasons why he was murdered also oh absolutely he was murdered because he was doing everything he could to obstruct what his quote-unquote advisors wanted him to do. He was negotiating directly with Russia through back channels. He was trying to negotiate with Cuba. He wasn't following their uh, orders in Vietnam to their liking. He was interfering, I believe, even in Laos with uh, who they were trying to prop up there. So absolutely, yeah, I I think that that's why they killed him. Um, To say it was politically infeasible... I don't think, generally speaking, the people of this country tolerate going to war without some kind of pretext. And if you look at all of the wars, there, all of the, like, you know, you go back to the Spanish-American War, there was the, the bombing of the Maine, which... There's always a false flag. 
yes, the, w- there's the Lusitania for World War One. Right. Uh, World War Two, we have the provocation of uh, Pearl Harbor, which you know all the, the if you read the McCollum memo talks about the eight point plan to get oh, the yeah. Japanese to attack us, which includes putting all of our boats somewhere where they can get to them. Um, then the know, Gulf of Tonkin. Sure, Gulf of Tonkin for Vietnam and 9/11 gave us Iran and or Iraq rather and Afghanistan. So, yeah, of course. And then from there, terrorism, you know, terrorism, the new the new ism was communism for a long time. That was the big ism that they used to to justify intervening in in uh, sovereignty. But now it's terrorism, and that you know you get. Well, you get everything. You get Libya and you get Syria and you could argue, um, well, you know, interestingly enough, in, in Bosnia and uh, Kosovo, they were working oh, yeah. with the terrorists. So, but anyway. That's a diff- that's a that's another yeah. program all in its own, yeah. what happened in Kosovo. And uh, this question I should have asked you at the end of the program, but I have to ask you now, did quickly reveal what or who is behind the New World Order in substance or in name? Well, he names the individuals who actually created the network. So if you believe that these people that he researched were ultimately the individuals who were in control, which I don't know if that's the case. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find that there were people behind them. So like, for instance, he's dismissive of Rothschild's involvement in it. But you know, some people would say, well, maybe he didn't get to look at all the secret papers. You know, that's one of the things Carol Quigley's uh, – the, the value that he brings to the table is that he was actually invited in and allowed to see uh, the secret papers of the CFR and how they were orchestrating all these things. So um, I, he doesn't – it's kind of a hard question to answer. He – he describes in name specifically Rhodes and Steed and Lord Escher and uh, how uh, Salisbury is involved, Lord Salisbury and uh, Lionel Curtis and other individual names, Milner. I don't know if I said Milner already. He was huge in it. Um, but whether or not uh, there was another power that was ultimately using them as the front isn't addressed. And this is a very timely interview because of most of the world geopolitical events we're seeing today seem to be paving, paving the road to a one-world government. The influx of immigrants, and I have no problem with, with legal immigration folks, but what we're seeing in Europe and the proposed bringing of a million of them here to the United States, we could do another interview about that. The turnover or surrendering of the inter- internet to an international body, the false flags, uh, shootings as a pretext to take our guns. Do you see how all these pieces are converging? Well, see, again, these people are not stupid, okay? You can call them a lot of things, but stupid is not one of them. They understand human psychology and they know how to manipulate people. And that's one of the reasons why it is so incredibly important for people to understand the nature of these types of people, that these people exist, that they do not think the way you do. They, they exist in a world where there is no moral dimension. Right and wrong is not determined by the character of one's actions. Right and wrong is determined by whether or not they achieve what they've set out to do. So when you start to think that way, 
then you can read, like I just referenced, uh, you know, I don't know, five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, the, the new CFR study, the 2008 uh, World Governance, uh, or no, Global Governance World Order in the 21st Century. Look that up and read it, and you'll see where they they discuss these problems that have to be overcome, and then they discuss how terrorism, international terrorism, has forced the United States to face the concept of sacrificing some sovereignty and sacrificing some of its constitutional and legal legal traditions. So they don't, of course, come right out and say it's fantastic that terrorism is doing that. But do you think they don't understand how that is affecting that 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 is actually a useful tool for getting what they are otherwise unable to get? Of course it is. That's one of the things that I discuss in the book is, you know, and it's where I might get, I try to be, uh, I try not to get emotional at all. I try just to put the facts in there. But in that particular case and in that particular section, I get uh, a little bit irritated because of the cynicism, just the absolute shameless cynicism of them talking about how they need to create these structures so they can help contain terrorism which they themselves have fostered and created so it disturbs me they don't add that last part that they themselves have fostered and created it but that's the whole point of everything that you read in the book prior to that which is to show how they've done that absolutely and by the way when i mention immigration again i feel for the people who are uh, being completely uprooted from the country state take it syria as an example we know what's happening there and just before we began this interview today I received some information, bona fide information, stating that, well, we know that a few days ago, the United States bombed a, a, a group of, of Syrian soldiers. And now, in response, Russia just bombed a cave that was full of Americans, Israelis, and they were actually coordinating ISIS. But again, I don't want to deviate here for a moment, but I can see how we're uprooting all these people from their own countries because we're bombing them at the same time. Mm-hmm. This would be considered legal immigration because it's being sponsored by our governments. However, what I don't understand, Joe, is we're not prepared to absorb so many immigrants who do not speak our language, whose culture is diametrically opposed to ours. Our schools are not prepared to embrace them all. Our hospitals are not prepared. Our labor market is not prepared. So there must be an ulterior motive to destabilize Europe and the United States. What do you think the real purpose is? What do they get with crisis? What does crisis lead to? Crisis always leads to more power and control. So that's that's a default go-to uh, a, a mode of operation, you know. Wherever they create crisis and fear, inevitably and ironically, people turn to the progenitors of that crisis and fear, which is the state. So it's I uh, I guess I would just go back to the the, the whole. I, I try not to go too far into the current events. I focus mainly on establishing what the system actually is and what the instruments are that we need to weaken and or destroy to to like rescue ourselves from this this horrible illegitimate um, situation we're in. Because to me, we shouldn't even be talking about these immigrants. Because 
the power to to go and just attack other nations and the money that it takes and the intelligence instruments and assets that are out there creating all this chaos they shouldn't even exist and they wouldn't exist this this horrible weapon that's being used to create all this chaos in the world and create the pretexts for the ultimate reduction of sovereignty and whatever new emergency measures that they come up with are all possible because of all of this money that they have access to. And these, again, like I said, the CIA, the NSA, the military industrial complex, name any of these uh, arms. And then you could look at the way they control what people think through the media, through the education system. All of these things come together in a way to help them uh, further their goal. And they're not going to just stop. They'll keep doing things and do ultimately whatever it takes to get what they want. So we're kind of in a race against time, I think, to uh, wake as many people up as possible. So the most important part of their program which is, which is the belief in the legitimacy of the action. So, for instance, the gullibility of the public to believe that we're actually in Syria killing these people because the policymakers in Washington care about the freedom of the Syrians. Yeah. You understand? Or that, you know, going into Iraq was about freeing the Iran or the Iraq. Why do I keep calling them the Iranians? Maybe that's because that's maybe that's a Freudian slip because that's who they're really after right. is Iran. OK, but yes, you know, we were trying to liberate the Iraqis. Thank God. I think we're to a point where um, people really aren't buying into that anymore. And maybe that's why we're seeing an acceleration of of this uh of this destabilization and causing all this chaos. At the same time, we have to try not to be too afraid. Uh, they do prey on fear. So they want people to be really fearful of the Muslims invading and things like that. In the United States, you know, there are an awful lot of armed Americans. And if ever there was any sufficient number of radicals who came here and actually tried to impose Sharia law, which is what you hear all the time, uh, I think they would have a real difficult time doing it because if the government – this is one of the things. Let's pretend there is no government. What would we do? Would we defend ourselves? Of course we would. And there's hundreds of millions of people who are capable of doing that. So they'll use some imagery and some isolated incidents. I'm not saying that it is no threat. I'm just saying the greater threat is the people who are causing the chaos to get you afraid so that they can then implement the policies that you would otherwise not accept. I want people to understand that, you know, ultimately we have to get away from this idea that that government is going to solve the problems that government is causing. It's ultimately up to us. And so if let's assume there were a hundred thousand Muslims here, yeah, there could be some terrorism and there could be people who die and that's, that happens. I mean, a lot of people die all the time. It's kind of how life works. It would be up to us to protect ourselves from that. The idea that those people are going to be able to come in here and take everything over and, and subject us to a system of government that we don't want or accept, I, I don't see how that would work logistically. Well, at the same time, when you look at France, for example, they have over 150 no-go zones. And I was recently there. I, I love Paris. But what I saw right now, I just could not believe how it has been changing to the point where these no-go zones are becoming part of, of the city. And 
By no go zones, you mean there are areas where there uh, there are too many illegal immigrants and they're dangerous. Well, whether they're legal or illegal, I don't know. But they're okay. simply living in these areas where the police or emergency services they don't even go there. So it's almost like it's a it's a it's a country within its own borders, and that's mm-hmm. the concern people have in the United States. Yes, we have all the guns. Yes, but if you have a city that turns into one of these. I mean, take a look at London. They have a Muslim mayor now. Um, you know, that's a concern that we have, that the the culture, which is diametrically opposed to us, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them, I'm not generalizing, but a lot of them do not like us here. And I don't be, I don't want to be sounding like a right winger because I'm not, yeah. but it's an area of concern. And I think this is completely premeditated, bringing these people to destabilize our country. Why doesn't Saudi Arabia, they have, for example, they have over 100,000 tents that can warehouse, I mean, not warehouse, but, but house over 1 million immigrants there, air-conditioned. They haven't, taken, no they haven't taken a single one, Qatar, all the very rich countries in that area of the world, same culture, same language, they're not taking anybody. There is no doubt that they will benefit from conflict. Okay, so that would be why. That would be why they, the, the network, <laughs> the policymakers, the experts would create a situation that would cause these problems. I guess my point is, and I'm not saying that there are no problems. I, I'm not saying that what you've just described is ideal or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is we have to try not to allow whatever conflict they create to be used as an excuse to give the same people more power and control. Now, how do we do that? I am not 100% certain because generally speaking, people always turn to the state for protection. And so I really don't know. I don't know what the gun, law, gun laws are in France. I haven't, I don't know if- No if, guns I mean, allowed, period. None? None. Okay, well, there you go. That, that would be one thing that would be not good and thank God we don't have to face that. Because then you are dependent. You really are. At that point, you have to turn to the state. At least here, if the state isn't doing its job, people do have the capacity to defend themselves against violent individuals who are coming in here and trying to, uh, you know, compel obedience to uh, an ideology or a religion or a culture or whatever it is that's the antithesis of what they want. So, um, but again, what I go back to is not only are they doing this, this, I guess this is the point, Mel, this is what I'm trying to say. Not only are they doing this, but then they're broadcasting it everywhere and they're using it to terrify people. So that's kind of the point that I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a script and it's part of what they're doing and they're doing it clearly to achieve some objective and as far as I'm concerned, based on everything I've seen over my research for over well over a decade now, uh, it's it's um, you know they they get they create chaos and out of that chaos they derive more power and control. So that would be the reason why they're doing it. It's just an issue of whether or not we can not um, fall for that and say, oh, okay, well then, you know, we have to, we have to give up our sovereignty. We have to give this up. We have to give up these freedoms to protect ourselves. You know, you see them doing that with the guns. The guns is a perfect example. So they go out and they, regardless of whether or not it's a false flag shooting, like the Brabant massacres, Operation Gladio, which I cover in the Mm -hmm. book, 
Okay, regardless of whether it's that or not, we all know instinctively what they're going to do with the massacre. They're going to use it as a justification to disarm people. Fortunately, that has not worked here. It just hasn't. I don't think that narrative has worked here. It has worked elsewhere, but it hasn't worked in the United States very well. I, I don't feel that there's, I don't feel like they themselves even believe that they've made a lot of ground on that. There's a lot of pushback against that. So, so and, and by the way, when I said uh, no guns, let me correct that. It's okay. a very restrictive country. Okay. You need okay. really, really to prove hardly anybody has guns there for that reason. Yeah. Right. And so anyway, hopefully that at least kind of addresses that topic a little bit that um, you can you can rest assured that they know what they're doing. OK, they do know what they're doing. They're fully aware of how to benefit from creating chaos, creating conflict, creating war. It's what they do. It's what they do. And that's how they derive. That's how they get power. You know, fear. They say that war is the health of the state, but really fear is, is the health of the state. Fear Absolutely. of enemies, fear of boogeymen. Absolutely. I think fear, you know, yeah. one must be without fear. You have to be in uh, in awareness, but not in fear. But this leads me to, 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 to ask you, is democracy then after seeing all these geopolitical events that are permeating into the United States now and Europe and, and other places around the world, is democracy an illusion? Absolutely. I, well, at least in the form that we were taught, you know, the idea that we have this representative government and our elected officials are out there to represent us and uh, they're out for the good of the people and they just want to make sure our rights are protected, all of that nonsense. It's absolutely 100% an illusion. That's, again, now let's get back to Quigley. He says so in no uncertain terms. You know, he starts right out in that, or I start out in uh, chapter one with that, that uh, quote where he, he discusses the two parties. He says, of course, the two parties should be nearly identical. That way, the electorate can throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound shifts in policies that have been established by the experts. Illusion of the choice. Yeah, the experts will replace the Democratic voter in the 20th century. That, those are his words, an exact quote. And we're out of the 20th century now. In the 20, That was in the 60s he wrote that. And it was already that way. So it just is worse now. <laughs> but again, I, I do think people are waking up to that fact. I really do. I, I've, I've been at this for a while now, and I remember uh, when I first started digging into these things, I've been online since 96, and uh, probably started paying a reasonable amount of attention uh, to what was going on politically right around, I'd say, uh, 2001, right after 9-11. And the general level of awareness uh, among the people, if you can take message boards and comments and things like that as an indication, is just night and day, night and day. You know, so where the pejorative conspiracy, thin, uh, conspiracy theorist, tinfoil hat wearing, blah, blah, blah. Those memes don't even seem to have any power anymore because there are so many educated people who say, yeah, it's totally crazy to think the government would ever do that. Hey, have you ever read this? Have you ever heard about this? Have you ever checked this out? It's just too easy to shut it down now. And there's a lot of people doing that. So, you know, hopefully that's a little bit of a uh, uh, shining light <laughs> to look at. I remember back in the late 80s when 
you know, computers were more affordable and you could access with your modem to, you know, BBS networks that discuss all these topics. Now, any of us who were discussing these things were considered truly conspiracy theorists. Now, now it's conspiracy factuals, believe me. It is because they are facts. That's the thing. Whereas before you had this giant media operation controlled by the network that could reach billions of people overnight. Okay. They could make billions of people aware of something that nobody had ever heard of the day before. Okay. And there was no way to actually refute that. So you put this information out into billions of minds and those billions of minds thinking that they're informed go out and reiterate that information around the water cooler and in the workplace and while they're out having drinks at the bar or whatever it is. And that becomes the, the, the received reality. And the only way anybody could have ever uh, effectively refuted what had been put out, the lie, would be to have the network graciously hand over that same uh, legacy media operation and report it for them. <laughs> so what are the odds of that happening? Zero. So that's how they really controlled. Uh, I mean, if you can try to get your mind around the power of that, how, how much power, not just in the indoctrination through the education system, but just through the power of a consolidated media that can reach so many minds and create an illusion simultaneously in so many minds and, and, and withhold any information that would uh, undermine that illusion, because that's 90% of it is just reporting bits and pieces that create uh, a false, a, a false perception. Um, and that the only way to ever do anything about the only way to ever undermine that would be if they use that same system against themselves, which they would never do. Now, we don't have to worry about that any longer. Now, literally, one person can can come out, one whistleblower can come out and reveal information that goes around the world overnight for free. So that's something that they've never had to deal with before. <laughs> I don't suppose they like it very much, and that's one of the reasons why they're trying to get control of the Internet, but that's going to fail too because there, there are already people working on a decentralized system that can't be shut down. And by the time, I believe, by the time they, you know, 10 years from now, the Internet that we use today, is far, I'm assuming, will be considered obsolete. I don't know if you've looked into mesh networks and all yes. these other interesting things that people are doing. Yeah. There's no reason to think that 10 years from now or even especially 15 years from now that what we rely on right now will be the only game in town. I highly doubt that. But isn't this proof? What we're seeing that on September 20-some, I forget exactly the date, we are giving the reins of the Internet to an international entity, more power. If you have, if you completely rescind from this power, which, you know, we in the United States, the backbone and, and, and the creation, DARPA and all that came from here, that gives us an edge. If we give this power to an international entity and we have a China or another country that doesn't like what's being put forth there, doesn't that take our sovereignty away immediately? Well, everything that they're doing is is designed to incrementally do that. So, it, you know, from one point of the argument, you could definitely say what you just said, that by 
handing over. Now, I, I do have to say I'm not 100% sure what the handover really amounts to. I don't know what um, the consequences of it are. I don't understand technologically what exactly it is that we're giving up. I, I mean, if we're just giving up something that uh, controls, like, say, how domain names resolve, perhaps there's another way to, uh, to, to handle that, to handle that issue. Like, could somebody create a browser that then would, would take over the, the capacity that was lost because China decided that it was going to impose uh, censorship against Mel uh, around the world? I, I, I would imagine that there's got to be some way to do it and that that, um, that black market, it would probably be a black market, but maybe it wouldn't be a black market. Maybe it would just be something that, that, uh, that the United States, uh, that the people in the United States had enough political will to create to say, look, we can't have, uh, the United Nations or, or, uh, you know, countries with a greater, uh, number of people over there because they have a greater vote having the ability to censor these things that are, that are important to us. So, I mean, I really don't know. I don't know what the end result of whatever it is that they've done is because I just haven't looked into it enough. Well, I can but read I you, I can read you. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just read you this little paragraph here in case people are wondering this should be October 1st. If it's not delayed anymore, let me read you from uh, computer world. The U S will go ahead with its plan to hand over oversight of the Internet's domain name system function to a multi-stakeholder body on October 1st, despite fierce opposition from some lawmakers and advocacy, advocacy groups. And that includes DNS, DNS root, IP addressing, and naming. You know, for years, our, our listeners have been asking us to have our IP address in the event something like this happens. But mm -hmm. folks, you have our IP address in case something like that happens, but they're also be controlling the IP address. So this is very critical. Okay. Right. So basically you wouldn't even be able to na navigate even using the IP. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, doesn't sound, doesn't sound like anything that we'd want to have to deal with, but you know what will happen if they, if they shut it down? I mean, are people just going to go away or is it just going to further illustrate the tyranny of the system that we live under. So, something else will come up, and and I think you yeah. can give I, you can give me something, but you cannot take it unless it's you know we're used to always receiving, receiving. But the moment something's taken away from us, especially the internet. I mean, if you take the telephone away or a car away, but the internet. How many people are really depending their lives right now, their businesses? I mean, it, we are so entrenched, it's creating a singularity, transhumanism, in a way. Yeah. Well, again, yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't really researched it. I've seen the stories, and I don't pay a whole lot of attention to what they're doing today because I know what their ultimate endgame is. So it's just like a never-ending sea of things that they're doing to try to facilitate what they're ultimately after. So none of it surprises me, and a lot of it would disturb me, but I'm just – Continually, I guess, if anything, I'm focused more on the things that will hopefully prevent them from from doing what they want to do. So, as I stated, uh, whatever it is that they manage to achieve with the Internet at this point, I believe they're late. I believe they're late to the game and anything that they try to do to uh, to circumvent this 
far superior form of communication to anything that we've ever had ever in history uh, is going to fail. And it's going to be very hard for them to criminalize anything that restores what some international body takes away. That's my view of it. I, of course, could be wrong, but that's that's just kind of how I perceive it. Well, the thing is that so many people, and the, the internet could be used in two, two ways. You have some people you know, saying there's so much misinformation, disinformation out there. At the same time, I remember back, uh, uh, what was the uh, Desert Shield back in 1990 and 91? I remember how I believed everything CNN and the news told me, line, hook, and sinker back then. Yeah. And now when you take those pieces of video, you realize how much they were lying back then and the real reason for going to that war and, and how Saddam Hussein was really put into a corner and lied to because we analyze that on our own now. So a lot of the reporting and the analysis happens outside of the media. So that's an yeah. area of concern for them. But we have to take a one and only break. But before, I want to ask you a question, and I'll get the answer on the other side, because part two, I want to focus on a lot of discussing this, discerning more of the book, but also solutions. But we hear, Joe, these names all the time. The Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Jesuits, the Zionist supremacists, the Freemasons, etc. I want to know, who is really running things? And they've quickly got into it in his book. But how can people buy Tragedy and Hope 101 and all, all your other books? How can people learn more about your work? Well, first of all, they don't have to buy the book. They can actually read the entire book for free online at tragedyandhope.info. So again, it's tragedyandhope.info. They can go there and they can read every word of it. And if they decide they want to purchase a copy, they can, of course, get a copy uh, through Amazon. They can get a hard copy there or they can get the Kindle version. And then also by going to that URL, they'll see, uh, they'll see Leaving the Illusion. They'll see Dishonest Money, which is about the Federal Reserve System. Same deal on both of those books. If you would like to read them for free, they're 100% available for free. Uh, the information is something that I want people to have access to. I don't want any barrier to entry. So hopefully, you know, that's about as easy as I can make it. I can't read it for people, but I can, I can put it out there and, and, and make it available to them. That's wonderful. Much more dissertation of Tragedy and Hope and Tragedy and Hope 101 when we return. I'm here with my special guest, Joseph Plummer. This is Mel Famergus, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. 